Hello there, this is Nick Parker on the Exxon UK. So, first of all, I just want to let you know uh, that I am okay, sort of. And a big thank you to all of the listeners that um, out there in podcast land that made contact or tried to make contact in the past few weeks. Uh, it's been a bit of a rough time. I started with some disturbed sleep half-remembered dreams and ended up with a timely intervention down at Land's End but I'll tell you all about it in a second let me just start at the beginning as regular listeners will no doubt remember I received what I am now calling the Whitney Idol three weeks ago and whilst initially curious to see it and frankly more than a little sceptical and dubious about its ability to terrify once it was unboxed, well, it became a focus of somewhat dread fascination. As has already been described by others, the idol is small, possibly no more than nine inches tall, five inches wide and about four inches deep. It is, I think, or I think we all now think, a representation of the great old one Cthulhu and whilst totally alien in appearance the fact that it is bipedal and sitting down seems strangely human as if it's at rest or like those old images of God in the Bible sitting in judgment it's made of a green stone that is alternately flecked with black and gold striations that have so far defied scientific inquiry. The stone itself is slick to the touch and oddly clammy. It's almost like the stone is sweating, but uh, that's probably the product of my imagination, or at least I hope so. I learned early on to wear gloves before handling it, as to have my skin touching that stone directly soon became quite repellent to me. Once out of its box, I placed it on my work desk, as I said about my daily tasks. I think the first odd moment with it was when I was doing some internet searches. I'd set the idol facing towards the room and indirectly myself, left my desk to get a drink. When I returned, it was facing the screen. At first I put it down to tiredness on my behalf and just turned it back around and went back to work. However, this was just the first of a number of similar events which began to test my sanity. The idol would not just change angle, but also move. I don't exactly have a huge amount of rooms in the place I'm renting currently, but I dare say the Whitney Idol was found in almost every one at some point. The dreams began within a couple of days of the Idol arriving with me, and I began to understand what Dr. Campbell had been talking about and gain new understanding of why she had been so agitated. The first few nights I just awoke in a cold sweat and I could barely recall anything 
except the sense of strange purple skies and the sound of the sea smashing against rocks. Later, these became more vivid, and I recall first standing on a strand of sand stretched out into a green-grey expanse against a sky that was dark and coloured like a bruise, yellow, black and purple. White-capped waves rose and fell occasionally, and I would swear I could see shadows moving within their vast curls. These shadows were as large as a man, but their silhouettes were indistinct and annoyingly fleeting. After the first week, I found I was losing appetite for work. I craved the refuge of sleep, even though it in itself brought its own complications. I can't say I was scared at this point in time, just, just a little confused at what I was experiencing. Sleep, whilst a refuge, was also disturbed, and I could feel a weight of tiredness descending upon me. In these past few weeks, I really can't say that I've ever had a full night of recuperative sleep. Instead, the dreams became more vivid and uh, more disturbing. The setting was often the same. Great watery spaces opened up before me and before long, before long I found myself walking naked along the strand and into the waves themselves. Now I'm a reasonable swimmer but my ability is confined to the in-air pool on a couple of lengths. Yet in my dreams... I plunged into the surf and swam with great efficiency. I ploughed through surging waves with little impediment and even spent some long periods underwater, marvelling at the rocks and reefs below me that teemed with aquatic life. Shadows would occasionally form around me, but I could still make out very little actual detail. But I had the impression they were greeting me and encouraging me to go further and deeper in their company. These dream visions would often end suddenly and I would wake up with a sense I had been denied some essential knowledge or a secret truth of the universe. It began to frustrate me and I would find myself angrily walking around the house, smashing cups or plates, innocent ceramic victims to my growing madness. Whenever these rages descended... I would look around, and it would be there. That enigmatic visage of the great old one, sitting in mocking judgment. A couple of times I thought of throwing the idol away, or burying it in the garden, but each time I thought that, a placid sense of calm descended on me, and I would find myself arguing with myself that I was just being foolish and that there was nothing to worry about. About ten days ago, the dreams took a new turn. Once again, I was playing in the waves with the shadowy people when I noticed that I was on the edge of a deep shelf where the ocean floor could no longer be seen. I peered down into those black, dark fathoms and thought I could see a glint of light 
curious, I dove from the shelf and descended into those dark fathoms. And soon I could see buildings that had the look of Greek or Roman antiquity about them. For a moment I thought I discovered Atlantis in my dreams. Before long I was walking in wonder through titanic sunken porticos and labyrinths of weedy cyclopean walls. I was not alone. Grotesque, ugly fishes, the like that are found in the darkest, deepest places of the ocean, were my constant companions. Then the shadows began to appear, and they seemed suddenly more substantial. I would awake in sweaty terror, my heart in my mouth. But during the dreams, they did not horrify me at all, because I had become one with them. I was wearing their inhuman trappings, treading their aqueous ways, and praying monstrously at their evil sea-bottom temples. In the last few days, my mind was reeling, and I began to lose track of time in the normal world. That world of modern humanity, with its incessant static of noise, became an irritant, and I turned off computers, televisions, radios, and phones. The last is what I clung on to, until this odd dementia took complete hold. It was as if I knew that this was a lifeline, that at any moment I could reach out and call for help. But he was there, staring at me. I wanted to please him, and I thought such a deed would be a betrayal. But eventually, it too was switched off my phone, the light of the screen fading away. The blackouts came a couple of days ago. I would find myself walking the streets at night unshaven, unkempt, stumbling, staggering. I must have looked a right old mess. I guess pure luck saved me from the attention of the authorities, but I would head back home in a daze of confusion. I can't be certain when my last dream took place, but... I think it might have been on the M5 motorway in the middle of the night as I headed into Cornwall. I had that sense that I was now a passenger in my own body, like an automaton. The familiar learned patterns of action, the driving of the car being handled, but not consciously by me. In this dream, I was back in the houses below the waves. My shadows were leading me to a great hall with huge vaulted doors that were marked with strange designs. I could not imagine what could possibly have the strength to pull those vast gates open, yet as I drew closer they seemed to drift open by the power of an invisible force. I, I could not help but feel a sense of awe that I was but a small speck in this unknowably titanic space. 
then I had a sense of something in the darkness beyond, unfurling. And then, blackness. I awoke to the sound of gulls and the smell of coffee. It was the early dawn light, and I was sitting in my car in the National Trust car park at Land's End. The coffee was being offered to me by a, a willowy-looking blonde woman with streaks of green and red dye in her long, flowing hair. She smiled at me and indicated I should drink the coffee, which I did, and as its welcoming warmth seeped into me, I felt a sense of normality, of well-being pervading my within. I imagine it's what it must be like if you awake from a coma and realise that you and the world are still there. You have bad dreams, she said, her accent indicating that she was not British. Yes, I said, and there was a lump in my throat that prevented me from saying anything further. It's all right, they're gone now, she said. I looked around for the idol, but there was no sign of it. That's gone too, she said, as she saw my confusion. I think that's for the best, don't you, she said. Yes, I said again. Well, I'll be seeing you, she said. You can keep the thermos. And she gave me a wave as she headed off to her car, a beaten up estate that had clearly seen better days. Dawn broke at that point, and I had never seen anything so beautiful. Wait, what's your name, I shouted as she started the engine. People here call me T, she said. And thank you, T, I said earnestly. Now, I don't know who she was or how she knew of my problems, but I strongly suspect we'll meet again. And that's my story of my time with the Whitney Idol done. The dreams have gone, and the sense of a malign influence in my home has also departed. Most of me is back intact now, and... When I got home, I slept for about 30 hours straight. Now I can get back to work and on to the next part of the Yellow King Blues. You know, it's odd, but a part of me misses the idol and the dreams. But that's just madness talking, right? <laughs>